Good morning. morning. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for the songs, Don. And good to have you back. Yeah. In one piece. Safe and sound. Okay. Exodus 28 will be there first. I'm going to talk about the priesthood again, and uh, as we said last time, didn't know how many lessons this will be. Well, it looks like it's going to be three lessons. Lord willing, we'll finish this up next Sunday. Uh, A topic that uh, probably don't address as much as we should and don't understand it as much as we should, and... uh, Next Sunday, you'll get more of a feel for that to understand about the priesthood today under the dispensation of Christ. We talked about dispensations last time, how the priesthood uh, and priestly work that was done was different at different times. Uh, We noted in the Garden of Eden there was no need for a priest because there was no sin. But then after sin, we saw there was priestly work that was done. Uh, Noah, Job, And especially Melchizedek, we find him, the king of Salem and God most high there, uh, Abraham interacting with him in the long ago. And he will appear for us again uh, later in this lesson and then certainly next week also. We noted the responsibilities and duties of a priest were mainly two. First of all, to teach Uh, the statutes of God, uh, pointing out what was clean and unclean, what was right and wrong, uh, what was holy and what was unholy. That was their task. And then secondly was to be the go-between between the worshiper and God in offering sacrifices for sin, that no man could simply approach God on their own, that they needed someone who was designated by God for that task in offering a sacrifice. So we're going to look here mainly at the law of Moses and what the priesthood was like at that time. Just uh, can give you a a brief flavoring for that and encourage you to read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers in particular. You want to learn more about this priesthood and the sacrifices that were to be offered under various conditions and situations and times. It was a very involved uh, process. Uh, On a daily, they had daily sacrifices they offered uh, and uh, offerings for sin when people sinned, when people were troubled. Uh, People had needed to be cleansed after they had some kind of disease, all kinds of reasons they had to go to the priest to offer sacrifices. In Exodus 28, we're going to start out, though, looking at the uh, ordination, if you will, of Aaron and his sons as being the priest unto God under the law of Moses. And... uh, as I would understand it, they, when this was all done, this was done for them for all time, and that any 
new person that came to be a priest didn't have to go through this. I don't see that anywhere else under Moses. That Moses that at this time when Aaron and his sons were consecrated, that was done for the whole family or all the progeny that would come under uh, Aaron. Now remember uh, that Aaron was of the tribe of Levi as Moses was. And the Levites had some t duties around the tabernacle and the temple. They were to assist the priests in carrying out all these instructions about sacrifices. But the priesthood belonged simply to the descendants of Aaron, his family. Uh, those were the ones who were to be the priests. So let's look here in Exodus 28. Verse 1, then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, speaking to Moses, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel, to minister as priests to me, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. Um, again, this was God's doing. We noted that the priesthood was God's idea. It wasn't man's. And now this is God's idea that Aaron and his family would be the priests. Um, it's hard to imagine what a privilege this was for them to be selected to serve as a priest to the Most High God in the things that were holy. Uh, sometimes when we're called on to do things for the Lord, we, we hesitate because we see them as being a burden. They see it as being an interruption to our day or to our schedule or you know, something I don't want to do but we should never see it that way. It's always a privilege and an honor to serve the Lord. And that's what this was for Aaron and his sons. They were chosen to serve as priests to God. Clothed in holy garments to reflect the glory and beauty of the Lord. Uh, again, beauty is something that God has given us, isn't it? We see it in creation all the time, everywhere. Beauty is something from God, and here we see specifically that the, uh, the clothing they were to wear, the robes and so forth, were to be beautiful and made beautiful uh, to show the, the beauty and the glory of God. They were set apart then in doing this. So, you know, they, not everybody got to wear these robes, just the priests. So it showed then that they were consecrated to God's service. They were separated unto him by the garments that they wore. Now let's turn over to 29, and we're going to read a little bit here about this, these garments and this consecration or this ordination. And this whole thing lasted seven days. And you, you can read the whole chapter 29. We're not going to read it all to see what they went through to be consecrated to be priests unto God. 29.1, now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them as to minister as priests to me. 
Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and present them in the basket along with the bull and the two rams. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with a skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them, and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. What a time that must have been. You know, all of this was new under the law of Moses. So they received all this at Sinai, setting up actually building the tabernacle, assembling the tabernacle, making all the accoutrements for it, and then setting in place the priesthood who was to serve at that tabernacle. All of this, of course, would let the people know that Aaron and his sons were the one separated for this work. And as I was thinking about this, we were sharing a little bit in the Bible class about David prefiguring Christ. There are a lot of things in the Old Testament or types of things that were to come later. I was really, I was thinking about here this whole situation where they were washed with water and clothed with new clothing. Does that remind you of anything? Galatians 3.27, you've been baptized into Christ. You have put on Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. It's a beautiful picture. Okay, let's go to Leviticus 1. So they were ordained, and we're going to look here at one example of sacrifices being offered and one example of them teaching, just to get kind of a feeling for that. There were several different types of sacrifices. We don't have time to go into all those on different occasions or different reasons we've already mentioned. This is the one. It's just a burnt offering. Uh, Leviticus 1, we're going to look at the first nine verses here. An offering that was entirely burned up to God. Okay, there was nothing in this offering that was given to the priests. Now, a lot of the offerings, the priests got part of that, and that's the way they fed themselves and their families. Uh, but not, not with this burnt offering. And this was an offering. It may have been uh, atonement for sin. In fact, it might have been, but not only for atonement for sin. Uh, as I read some on this, it was also just to consecrate yourself to God, to get closer to God. You wanted to honor God, and so you brought a particular, this particular sacrifice to offer as a burnt offering. Uh, sometimes today we are moved to do something uh, for the Lord, okay? And it'd be the same idea. Well, we want to help out this person, that person, the congregation needs this or that, and we're moved. We just want to do it. And that was kind of what this sacrifice here was about. 
So let's read this and we'll talk about it. Leviticus 1 and 1. The Lord called to Moses, spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the soot over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. There's a lot involved there if you think about it. This was not anything that you just did in, in you know, three minutes. Just run up. I've got to run up to the, to the tabernacle this afternoon and offer a sacrifice. This would have been a lengthy ordeal. The worshiper, first of all, identifies with the animal by laying his hand on the head of the animal. That's, that's what you're doing. You're saying... This animal is being offered in place of me. Atonement or covering. Because of, that's what I want to do because of my sin. Uh, to show my uh, dedication or devotion. I'm going to offer this animal. Uh, it was to come from his herds, his flocks. And... Uh, you know, in those days, they had a lot of animals, a lot in their flocks and herds, but still, they were very close to these animals. If you've read anything, and we've talked from time to time about the sheep and the shepherds, and they had names for every one of their sheep and called them by name, like we read about Jesus knowing all his people and called them by name. And so for them to do this would not necessarily be an easy thing. You know, we just run out somewhere and get an animal and sacrifice it. This came from your own herd and own flock. Uh, and it makes us think about the situation when Jesus cleansed the temple, when these people were coming in there and buying a sacrifice to offer, whether or not God even really approved that because it wasn't an animal that was there, really theirs. They weren't close to it at all. It was kind of meaningless. We would just spend some money and offer a sacrifice. Here, this was your animal. You know, we all have pets. Well, some of us, most of us. We've had pets. You can imagine taking your pet and offering it as a sacrifice. It would be somewhat similar to that. So, it was not necessarily an easy thing to do or just a, you know, off-the-cuff thing to do, taking an animal and bringing it to die on your behalf. Notice also, 
that in uh, verse 3, is it? Where does it say that he will kill that himself? He shall, he shall slay. I was looking for the word kill. Thank you. He shall slay the young. The, the worshiper actually killed the animal. You had to kill your own sacrifice. Probably slit its throat. So it would bleed out. And of course the priest needed the blood. As we see, the priest took it and sprinkled it around on the altar and around the, around the uh, place where it was being sacrificed. Um, the priest prepares the fire. Now, as, as I was looking at this in verse 6, he shall skin the burnt offering, put in it, it, it into, cut it into its pieces. I'm not sure whether that's the worshiper or the priest. One place I read said it was the priest that did that, and that's what I was always kind of thinking. But if you look in the context, it says, it says he. So I'm, I'm kind of on the fence right now on that, and I'm not sure, and I'll just tell you that. And I don't know what you might think or what you might know. But even, you know, thinking about that, one way or the other, this all had to be done during this sacrifice. It's got to be skinned, and it's got to be cut into various pieces, and of course gutted and so forth. I know this is not a... A, a nice uh, picture, but it's not meant to be a nice picture, okay? Because this involves killing and death and blood. And in order to approach God, something has to die. And somebody did, didn't they? So this all prefigures the sacrifice that was to be made. So we should never take sin lightly because what, Jesus, or what God say to Adam and Eve, the day you eat of that tree, you will what? Surely die. That's the consequence of sin. And so for us to be free from sin, something has to die. So, you know, there's the picture. It's placed on the altar and it's burned. The priest is the one who actually does the sacrifice, puts it up there, and does the offering by fire, the burnt offering, on behalf of the one who brought his sacrifice, his lamb or his bull. So there's a, there's a picture of the priest going, being the go-between to offer the sacrifice. Now let's go over to Nehemiah 8. As we said, the other task or responsibility of the priest was to teach the Word of God. And uh, sometimes that was done collectively, as we're going to see here, and other times it was done, you know, individually or whatever. You can read that in other places uh, there in Leviticus and numbers, and so forth. But here's the situation here in Nehemiah. 
Judah has been in captivity in Babylon. They have come back. They have been rebuilding the temple, which wasn't even near to the beauty and glory of the temple of Solomon. But nevertheless, they had a temple, and they're trying to reestablish themselves in the land. And uh, here's the situation. Uh, they're going to have the law read to them. And it could well be that these people, they've been in captivity for close to 70 years. Some of them may have never even heard this before, being in captivity and being scattered in Babylon, scattered around Babylon in various places and not able to worship. So uh, that could well be the case. So Nehemiah 8 and 1 and all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. If you were with us on Wednesday night, now we got a better picture of what the gate is, right? And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And there we see the connection between scribe and priest which carried on down into the time of Christ because since the priests worked so much with the word of God on the scrolls they were the ones that ended up making the copies of those scrolls all right so they would always have enough scrolls because obviously they uh, they wore out they deteriorated over time and so it was the priests who ended up actually being scribes to copy those scrolls. So verse 3 says, He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. Now my footnote says literally from the light until midday. So these folks got up really early for church, <laughs> if you will. As soon as it got light, you know, they didn't have a lot of torches and all that around. As soon as it got light so ne or Ezra could read, see the, see the words, he started reading. And everybody was gathered around for that. They wanted to hear the word of God. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood... Got all these names now, Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashun, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Well, lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Because the people here really recognized what was going on in their moment of time, that it was God who had brought them back, and they owed everything to God at this point. Um, something which is always true, but we don't always recognize that. And then we have another group of names here. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezebad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. 
They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading or the meaning. All right, so we have the Levites assisting here. Uh, you can see Ezra in front of this great crowd reading from the law. And then you, get, you know that some of these people over, over here said, well, what does that mean? And somebody over here said, well, what does that mean? And I think that's why these others were here. I think maybe the first group was priests and the second group were Levites. I'm just kind of guessing here. I'm not totally sure, but some were Levites here in verse 7 anyway. So they were helping out and saying, well, this is what this means. And we, you know, we all have questions about the word of God and it was no different back then. But like I said, these people probably had not heard this before, at least a lot of them were, had been uh, 50 years since they heard the law read. And so this was a great day. I want to read on another verse or two here because I think it's most interesting. Then Nehemiah was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Imagine that. They were so touched and moved. It wasn't because it was a sad thing, okay? But it was just so wonderful. We, this, is, this is the Lord's words to us. They were so moved by the whole situation. Um, boy, we need to recapture that, don't we? To know that this is the word of the Lord God to us. We should be moved by it. We should be humbled. But we have it. Then verse 10, then he said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So it's not to be a day to, to mourn, but all right, you've got the word, we've got the word, you've heard it. It's a day to rejoice. So we see Ezra here and the, the, the Levites helping out for the people to understand the word of God. So again, that was the second uh, main responsibility of the priest. Now let's turn to Micah 3. That was a great day for God's people as they returned from captivity and tried to reestablish themselves and get back on track, but it didn't last long as it usually didn't last long because of our weaknesses through the flesh and sins. Micah 3.9. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. And he goes on to say that Jerusalem is going to become a heap of ruins and so forth. So we see that, you know, as they, from generation to generation, some would rise up and do good, but then by and large, they didn't. And so we see here the judges, who kind of stand in for the king or the prince, the priests, and the prophets were all corrupt. 
all led astray by their own greed or lust or whatever it was. And uh, that was the way it was. And even if you read, if you re reflect on reading in the Gospels about the high priests, the chief priests, how corrupt that whole system had become in the day of Christ. There was the chief priests who were chanting, crucify, crucify. And the Sanhedrin and the high priest, you know, we got to get this guy. He was the one who was kind of behind the whole thing. Let's, we got to get this Christ man, this Jesus, get rid of him. And uh, totally corrupt, become, become totally political, in, in cahoots with the Romans and the whole deal. So it's a sad situation. I think it was a situation God knew would happen because of it was involved human beings. He had planned the change all along and uh, he was going to bring his change in in due time. If you recall the prophecy in Zechariah, we studied Zechariah not too long ago in Bible class, there would be a priest who would sit on his throne and that of course is going to be Jesus a high priest on his throne. Let's go to Hebrews 7 here and 10 to close this out today. Not only had the, the priesthood become corrupt, the prophets and all, all going downhill, but there was also weakness in the law in the whole sacrificial system. Uh, and we're going to look at that here. And God had, God had set this in place it was a placeholder. As we read in Galatians 3, the law was a tutor or a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was never intended to last forever, as some people erroneously think today. It was never God's intention that this whole mosaic sacrificial system would last forever. And I think he designed it that way. It was designed to bring us to Jesus the ultimate Lamb of God, as we sang about not too long ago. Hebrews 7.11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, the one we're talking about, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. And if you want to read about these changes and the contrast between the Aaron's priesthood and priesthood of Melchizedek, read Hebrews. Take your time to read it. It will give you a lot of insight. But he says here that the priesthood was changed. And when the priesthood is changed, the law also had to be changed because the law and the priesthood were intricately interwoven. They, could, they were not separate. 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing 
concerning priests. And it's true. Judah was to be like a ruling tribe. But the priests were to come from the tribe of Levi and specifically the family of Aaron. And Moses never said anything about priests from Judah. But Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, isn't he? Descendant of David. And sits a priest on his throne. Verse 515, and this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, whom we talked about last time, who has become such on the basis of a law of a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Not a physical requirement. In other words, you have to be a descendant of Aaron in order to be a priest. There was no such requirement. But the, uh, the fact that he was appointed a priest according to the order of Melchizedek was because he had a life, he did not die. Well, he died, but he rose again. He lives forever. That's the basis of his priesthood. Just like we saw when we read about Melchizedek, he just kind of appeared from nowhere, didn't have a beginning and an end. Where did this guy come from? He prefigured the Christ who lived and has an indestructible life now. 17, for it is attested of him, meaning of Christ Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's actually a prophecy out of the Psalms. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. That is the law of Moses. For the law made nothing perfect. Grasp that. The law made nothing perfect. We'll see part of that in the next reading. Paul wrote in one place, I believe it was Paul, says the big problem with the law is because of the law is a knowledge of sin. And because of our weaknesses, we can't keep the law. The law kind of creates a tension within us. And it doesn't make us perfect because we can't keep it all perfectly. That's the problem. He who offends in one point has broken the whole law, right? I think James wrote that. And on the other hand, there is bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And the better hope, of course, is Christ and his law of grace. Hebrews 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. And again, there we see the picture. The law was a placeholder. It was just a shadow, a foreshadowing as we were talking about Christ Jesus uh, and David prefiguring him in the Bible class, looking forward to something much better. Can never, the law can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, we no longer have had consciousness of sin. And we studied this last time, the Day of Atonement. In fact, the next verse says, but in those sacrifices, a reminder of sins year by year. It was not just the new sins that you committed since the last Day of Atonement, but it was all your sins. None of them were ever removed. There was a remembrance of them all. 
Why? The next verse. For it is impossible, let that word sink in, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You can offer a million bulls and won't take away sin. In fact, you can offer yourself and it won't remove your sin. So, there is the basic problem with the law. God knew it. It was a placeholder to bring us to Christ. All of these things foreshadowing the real truths that were to come in Christ Jesus. He was bringing in something much better, a new priest after the order of Melchizedek who not only would be a high priest, but he himself would be the sacrifice under his priesthood. As Brian mentioned this morning, we were sang in the song, the Lamb of God offered up to take away the sin of the world. So, we do have a high priest, and we'll be talking a lot about him next week, Lord willing. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. If you've never been baptized into this Christ, and this is the way we get into Christ, faith, repentance, baptism, then you need to seriously consider that because his is the only sacrifice that removes sin, his blood. And we just, this morning, remembered his body and his blood being the great sacrifice for us. If you're ready to obey the gospel this morning, we, we can assist you with that. If you are a Christian and you're struggling with anything in life and you need prayer, uh, prayer for relief, prayer for healing, prayers, again, we study in the Bible class about driving old Satan away from you and leaving you alone. We'd be happy to pray with you, pray for you. If you're ready to come this morning, please come while we stand and sing.